when I'm done with this pastoral ministry thing, and, and hopefully I'm getting old, you know what I want people to say about me? I hope that people say, that guy Peter, he lived and died breathing the gospel. That's all he talked about. That's all he would ever talk about is the gospel. That's what I hope people say about me when I'm all said and done, is that I lived, breathed the gospel, and I taught, preached the gospel well. That's because for me, fundamentally, at the end of the day, as, uh, as somebody who's been very influential in my life, pastor in New York named Tim Keller said, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, like the beginning kind of intro steps to, but the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. We Christians have been sort of, I don't know, do fooled into thinking that the gospel is for, you know, non-Christians, something they could understand and embrace so they could become a Christian. But once we become a Christian, you know, we do away with the basics of the gospel and move on to working really hard to become more like Jesus. And it couldn't be further from the truth when you read your Bible. The gospel is not just the beginning point of the Christian life. It's the thereafter every day of the Christian life. The Apostle Paul in his very last goodbye to the church in Ephesus, and we cover this, chapter 20, verse 32 says, Now I commit you to the word of his grace, word of his grace, the gospel, which can build you up. And I say this every time. Look, you're sitting here. My marriage isn't working. I'm sitting here. My Christian life isn't where it needs to be. You're sitting here. I've got addiction problems. You're sitting here. I'm greedy and materialistic. You're sitting here. I've got all these sin issues. And if you are a Christian, the solution is not trying harder. We walked away from the Christian faith for many of us because we tried really hard and it didn't work. Anybody? It's not trying harder, but it is, this is the Bible, digging deeper into the gospel in such a way that we become more aware of it. We become more compelled by it. We become more seeped into our souls by it. That is the way that we not only become, but grow in the Christian life. Beginning to end, everything boils down to the ability of our hearts and souls to embrace, to understand, and to live out the gospel. See, this sounds foreign to us because if you grew up in church, this is what you heard. This is typical church preaching. You're not blank. You should be blank. So therefore, go and do blank. Anybody? You fill in the blank with anything. You're not holy. I know I'm not holy, but you should be holy. I know I should be holy. So go do be holy. And we get a list of things. We're sitting there going, I'm trying. It doesn't work. Fill in the blank with anything. You're not giving enough. You're not salt and light. You're not anything. But the problem is that mode of the Christian life not only doesn't work, it's not biblical. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says from beginning to end, let me show you. This is what you ought to do. However, the, this is what you ought to do has to be motivated by, prompted by, and empowered by what God has already done. Do you get that? That's why when you read the letters of Paul, in any New Testament letters, Paul spends the, about half of it just talking about, this is who God is, this is who God is, this is who God is, this is his nature, this is character, this is who God is, and this is what he has done, this is what he has done, this is what he has done. And then second half he says, therefore, the problem is many of y'all, if you underline your Bibles, I guarantee you, I look at your Bibles, if I see the yellow highlighted parts, I guarantee you, many of you, it's what you ought to do, what I ought to do, because that's what you're taught. Let me put it in sort of theological terms if you're taking notes. Imperatives separated from indicatives become impossibilities. That's a sermon in and of itself. Imperatives, what you ought to do is impossible without a recognition of and daily realization of what God has already done. Another way to put it, gospel obligations must be based on gospel proclamations or declarations. To which you're sitting going, all right, but the problem is, man, the gospel, like I, Peter, you talk about it every week, you talk about it every week, but my life doesn't seem to change. Anybody? 
See, that's another thing that Paul does. It's really cool. You know what Paul does? Talks about all these things. He prays for the people. Do you notice that? He prays a lot. There are lots of prayers. Why does he do that? Like prayer, for example, in the book of Ephesians, right? Ephesians chapter 3. There's like two, three prayers. But let me just say, chapter 3, verse 14. He says, for this reason I kneel before the Father. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now, here's the thing. He doesn't say anything he hasn't said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Nothing. There's no new insight. You know what he does? He's saying, I've said it. Now I pray it into your soul. Now I'm praying it into your soul. Why? Because he knows that the church in Ephesus is just like you and me. I know it. I know it. I know it. It's another thing to go seven, eight inches lower and to have it be real. This is why um, two, three weeks ago, I told you guys that part of my discipline, spiritual disciplines I'm trying, is to pray the gospel into my soul every day before I do anything. And I knew that you guys didn't get it because I just lit, I, I put this, these prayers up there. And, and, nor, and, and normally, people email me going, I, I didn't catch that prayer. What's that prayer? I know that's what happened. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to put the prayers up again. And I want you to write it down. If you can't write that fast, then you email the church office or whatever and say, what's that prayer again? Here's the prayer that, that, that I, 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 I literally pray into my soul every day because gospel obligations are impossible without gospel declaration. Here's the first prayer. I pray, unmerited, love and grace. I say, God, because I'm in Christ, there's nothing that I can do today that would make you love me less or love me more. And there's nothing that I have done that would make you love me less. God, because I'm in Christ today, help me to remember that there's nothing that I can do to make you love me more. There's nothing that I have done in the past that will make you love me less. All of a sudden, I realize John chapter 17, Jesus says that God loves you and I and sees you and I as he sees his son Jesus. He loves us as he loves his son Jesus. And, and things that I do every day to earn God's approval becomes absolutely ludicrous. Right? So I pray this into my soul. I pray this in my soul. How long does it take? Five seconds. Second prayer. Joy in Christ's efficiency. God, your love, your mercy, your presence, and ultimately your approval is all I need to have joy today. Can I ask you something? How many of us in our lives would be different if we really believe that? I mean, for crying out loud. It's not because you don't know, but it's because you don't know. Third, third prayer, resting in God's goodness. God, despite my circumstances, everything the gospel tells me about your intentions for my life are true. And I just pray that. Romans eight twenty eight. God, your intentions for my life are blessing and not curse. You're blessed. Your intentions for my life are hope and not despair. Your, dis- your intentions for my life is, 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 is resurrection and not death. And God's intentions for my life, whether it be through hardship, suffering, God's intentions for my life are good. And when I go through really, really hard things and I am tempted to doubt God's goodness, which is the number one temptation in all of us, Genesis chapter 3, and we've been suffering from a sense. Any time we go through, we doubt God's goodness. We doubt God's love. We pray this into our soul. We say, God, your intentions for my life are good because you work for the good of all those who love you. I've been called according to your purpose. Pray this into your soul. Pray this into your soul every day. Every day. It takes all of 30 seconds to a minute at most. You know what I want to do? You know what I want to do? Go back. Nate, go back. We're going to pray this together. Here we go. First slide. First slide. Ready? Everybody, say it out loud. I'm going to give you just a couple seconds to let it sink in. Here we go. Ready? Say it together. Here we go, church. God, because I'm in Christ... I know there's nothing I can do that would make you love me anymore. And there's nothing that I have done that makes you love me any less. Second slide, joy in Christ's efficiency. God, 
your love, your grace, your mercy, your presence, and ultimately your approval is all I need to have joy today. Third, God, despite my circumstances, everything the gospel tells me about your intentions for my life is true. You pray this in your soul. You pray this in your soul every day, every day, every day. Open your Bibles to me to Acts chapter 21. We're going to go ahead and read um, the sex together. When we come to Acts chapter 21, Paul, Apostle Paul has finally made his way to Jerusalem. And from here on out, chapters 21 to 28, is the journey from Jerusalem to Rome. Jerusalem, the beginning of the Christian faith, to Rome, the heart of the pagan Roman Empire. And we're going to see within 21, chapters 21 to 28, five trials and five different ways in which Paul responds to these trials. In other words, the scene and the feel of the movie, of the, of the, of the narrative changes dramatically, you know, even music, you know. I don't know if I told you guys, I listen to a lot of soundtracks, movie soundtracks, you know. I was actually going to read this text via a soundtrack from Braveheart because it was just like resonate, you know. The, 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 the book of Acts begins with joy and celebration and then chapter 21, all of a sudden, the mood turns dark, ominous. In the midst of it all, there's this overriding theme. God's in control. God's in control. God's in control. It's pretty amazing. All right, here we go. Chapter 21. Uh, let's, let's look at verse, uh, verse 4, and then we'll jump down to verse 7. So finding the disciples there, that's Tyre, we stayed with them seven days. And through the Spirit, they urged Paul, that's the Christians in Tyre, not to go to Jerusalem. And we'll come back to that and see why that's important. Verse 7. But we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Podlemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. Do you guys remember Philip? Remember Philip, Acts chapter 8? Remember one of the seven? We go, what happened to him? He got married and had some kids, okay? That's what happened to him, okay? Here we go. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That's what happened to Philip, okay? Verse 10. So after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Do you remember Agabus? Anybody paying attention to the book of Acts? Do you remember Agabus? He's the guy that prophesied about the famine and it really came true. Do you remember Lord, have mercy. Okay, here we go. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. He tied his own hands and feet with it. This guy's a little dramatic, you know, kind of like your pastor. The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of the belt. will hand him over to Gentiles. He gives a prophecy. Verse 12. When we heard this, the Christians said, we and the people were pleading with Paul, don't go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Does anybody else find that like powerful? I am ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. How many of us can say that this morning? Fourteen. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manaus and where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Verse 17. When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. So Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through, the, uh, through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, which is not true, telling them not to circumcise their children, which is not true, or live according to our custom, which is not true. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so that what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. That's a Nazarite vow, and I talk about that in a moment. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses. 
so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should, Acts 15 all over again, abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, then Paul took them in and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the day when the days of the purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. This is God's word. There's tons of stuff here um, that, 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 that I can go over and, and I just want to hit on two or three and, and, and we're done for today. When I was in my mid-twenties, I uh, went as a missionary to a small island called Guam in the middle of the South Pacific. Anybody been to Guam from Guam? What? Oh, because of the military. Yes, yes, yes. It is a U.S. territory, and there's lots of U.S. people there. I did not know that. I'm like, white people, what are y'all doing here? And I said, well, we're from the middle. So anyway, I'm in Guam, mid-20s. I'm 8,000, 9,000 miles away from home. I'm like 23, 24 years old. Came there with a duffel bag and a guitar to do ministry. I distinctly remember the first night Time change, you know, first night, staying up all night. And this enormous sense of loneliness that just. The very next day, seven o'clock, I get a call. It was the pastor that I was working with. He said, are you awake? I am now. I'm picking you up. We're going to go have breakfast together. So we went to go have breakfast. We met for a couple hours. He welcomed me talked about what we were going to be doing, ministry, so on and so forth. Then literally that night and every night thereafter for like four months, I had people from this church call me and say, come on over for dinner. Come on over, have a drink with us. Come on over for have coffee for four months in a row. These strangers practically invited me into their home treated me like their son. And the reason why that's powerful is, did you catch the scene in chapter 21? Did you notice how many times wherever Paul goes, there are a group of Christians that say, come on over. Did you notice? Come on over. Come on over. Give me a moment to just talk to you about the ministry of hospitality. (laughs) I love it when black people visit our church. That's all I got to say. (laughs) Not that the black people in our own church I don't like. I love y'all too. But for whatever reason, you've been influenced by the Asians and white folk in our church. And you are like quiet and reserved as ever. Do you know what hospitality literally means? Hospitality in Greek literally means welcome for strangers or welcome of new people. Where you not only welcome them with an open heart, but you provide for their needs practically. That's the word Greek. Hospitality literally means. Let me tell you how important hospitality is in Scripture. Look at just a handful of these verses. Just the New Testament. Romans 12, 13. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Titus chapter 1. And chapter 1 is the context in which uh, Paul is outlining the qualifications for an elder or leaders in the church. He says, rather, he must be hospitable. First Peter chapter 4 verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in his various forms. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 1. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Acts chapter 16, verse 15, we saw this. When Lydia and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. The Bible says over and over again two things about hospitality. Number one, the importance of hospitality. How important is it? First and foremost, it's required of leaders. Titus chapter 1, verse 8, without this quality, you could not be a leader in the church. That's how important it was. Hospitality, not just a side thing for, you know, those really extroverted people who have no sense of privacy. No, it was for leaders who wanted to lead in the church. Secondly, it was a spiritual gift. I love that. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10, 9 and 10 could be read. Exercise hospitality. And then for those of you, whatever your spiritual gift is. In other words, Paul's saying it's a spiritual gift for some, 
rest of you guys use whatever gift you have. Third, really, really important. Hospitality is a fundamental response to God's hospitality. The reason why we need to welcome strangers, welcome new people, and provide for them is Paul says that's what God in Christ did for us. That is what God in Christ did for us. When we, not just were strangers, when we were enemies of God, Paul says in Romans, God welcomes us into his family, into us as household, and extends his grace to us. And Paul says, anybody that has truly encountered this grace will inevitably open their hearts, open their homes, and welcome those. Acts chapter 16, verse 15, Lydia See her first thing, she becomes a Christian baptized, and first thing she does is, hey, hey, you got a place to stay? Come stay with us. It's powerful. And then verse, uh, and then last one, in case those of you are going, well, it's a spiritual gift. That's not my gift. Paul says, it's a Christian duty for everyone. For everyone. Importance. Secondly, expression. I'm just boom, boom, going, going through these, okay? Expression. What does it look like? Hospitality, at the end of the day, is generosity with your material goods and resources. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Share with God's people who are in need. But here's the thing. It's not just about money, but it's about time. Some of us, can we be honest? Money's not the bigger deal, right? We're saying, you know what? I don't mind giving people some Nate is back there because he's been championing this. He says, Peter, for me, being generous with my money, that's, you know, it's not like I'm filthy rich, but being generous with my money is not that big of a challenge. For me, it's my time. Anybody? That, for me, is the valuable resource. And hospitality is generosity with your time, with your money, with your energy, with your resources. Secondly, Hospitality is the genuine welcome and openness to new people and new relationships prompted by a keen interest in them. Hospitable people are not just welcome opening, but they have a keen interest. They're able to look around going, are they new? I don't know. Let me go find out. Are they new? I don't know. I'm going to find out. Are you new to the city? I don't know. I'm going to find out. A new neighbor moves in next door. Are they, they are new. I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out. Who are you? Keen interest. i tell you why this is hard in Chicago. Chicago conditions you to be suspicious of people. I don't know if it's like the major city. You know, we're like second to New York. Like I, some of you on, I was, in, I was in Tennessee like two months ago. I'm telling you, it's just superficial, but it is, it feels warm to have somebody go, how you doing, honey? Where are you from? With the smile. Here in Chicago, you match eye, you make eye contact with somebody like, what you looking at? <laughs> so we're in our trains, we're like, doop, 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 iPhones. I, you know what? I challenge some of you guys, go into a train this week, if you take train or bus, and just be like, hey, 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 they will look at you like you're a freak. <laughs> but here's the thing let alone out there. We do that in the church. See, if you're new, you don't know who else is new in this church, do you? You don't know 500 some people. That's why I keep telling you, if you're new, please don't give our church a bad name by being cold and unwelcoming because you may encounter a new person that Sunday and they may think you're an example of our church. So I say, it's a small thing, but say, hey, if you don't know him, hi, don't know you, what's your name? Get used to doing that. Third, hospitality characterized by warmth, open-heartedness. In other words, attitude and demeanor is as important as what you do. It's one thing to go, welcome to new community, (laughs) which I've gotten. And another thing to go, welcome to new community. We're glad that you're here. Why are you laughing? That was genuine. That was sincere. That was on the bottom of my heart. I'm totally hurt right now. (laughs) For it is a spiritual gift. There are some of you that are better at it than others. The question is, if this is a gift, what are you doing about it? By the way, if you're wondering, Peter, I don't know if I have the gift of spirit, hospitality, spiritual gift. Let me just ask some uh, questions, evaluate questions. Uh, do you enjoy providing an environment where people feel valued and cared for? Do, uh, do you enjoy meeting new people and helping them feel welcomed? 
Do you enjoy creating a safe and comfortable setting where relationships can develop? Do you enjoy seeking ways to connect people together in meaningful relationships? Uh, Do you enjoy setting people at ease in unfamiliar surroundings? Do you like inviting people into your home and using it as a tool for ministry? You guys, it, it goes without saying that a city like Chicago desperately needs Christians who are ministering via the gift of hospitality. Amen? Think about how many new people come to the city every year. And think about how many people move out. I mean, you and I are constantly meeting new people, constantly saying goodbye and saying hi to new people. There, is, there are fewer cities, even in the United States, that are as complex, that are as transient as the city of Chicago. And there are tons of people around you, even sitting today in your neighborhood, in your schools. There are people around you who are here without their immediate family, who are deeply emotionally affected because they're not with their immediate family who can be incredibly ministered to just by some Christians and ministering the gift and the ministry of hospitality. I mean, seriously. If there is a need, the city of Chicago is a perfect place for these things. So what do we do? What do we do? Okay, real quick, application. What do we do? Because we recognize that Chicago has more difficulties for hospitality than anywhere else. Like, for example, homes. Who owns a home? Do you guys remember those? Homes, houses, yard. Do you remember that? Some of you? Okay. It's like a while ago, Peter. Yeah. And we don't own homes. We own tiny little apartments. Some of us, we're very busy. Some of us are single. We don't have families. So how do we do it? A couple principles real quick, and then we're done. Number one, be sensitive to and ask God to welcome uh, who to welcome and befriend. Be sensitive to God and ask God who to welcome and befriend. A love for new people. If you don't have that, pray and say, God, will you give me? Help me develop a love for new people, a welcome, an openness to new people, and then taking a keen interest in them, doing something about it. But secondly, more practically, be alert at all times to the opportunities to help others. Again, the principle of hospitality is generosity with material things. The idea is practical help with your resources. So here are some things I want you to do, okay? Number one, be willing to spend some of your precious time without grumbling to help somebody get oriented to the city of Chicago. I just have a confession. You know, whenever we have visitors, like guests out of town, my wife sometimes or other people will go, hey, take them to like the city of Chicago, you know? And so they can see that. I go, why would I want to do that? There's like tour guides. Take the train. Figure it out yourself. That's me. That's me. But you know what? You know what? That's because I was born, not born, I was born in Korea. Came to the States when I was 10 years old. Did I mention that? Okay, anyway. I was, I've lived here all my life. That means Chicago is like home to me. But I have to put myself in the shoes of that 24-year-old who moved here because of a job. And they're in that apartment. They don't know anybody. And they're going, um, um, how many of you guys are in that situation or were in that situation? lot of you what would it be like for you just to take some time going you know i'm going to help you get to know chicago secondly some practical something you could do take somebody out to eat at a good but economically priced restaurant yes because here's the thing about hospitality. In case you're sitting there going, I don't own a home. I don't own a house. I'm single. What can I do? The Bible nowhere says you have to own a home. You have to be married and have family to be hospitable. Hospitality is a warmth, openness, and generosity with your resources. One of the most hospitable things you can do is after church on a Sunday, take somebody out, buy their lunch, and spend some time with them. Third, Invite people to your homes. Invite people to your apartments if you have one. Four meals or for coffee. And fourth, shout out to the hospitality ministry. Join Gur. <laughs> Join Gur. And in case you're going, what the heck is Gur? Nathan, what is Gur again? Greet Usher Resources. In other words, Gur is the frontline hospitality ministry of our church. And they're like 15, 20 minute women who are part of this ministry. You see them lined up outside. They're passing out boats and all that. Join that ministry. Join, join a group of people who are saying, you know what? I can do this. I want to do this. And I want to make people who are new to our church welcome. It's a great practical way for you to join the ministry. Hospitality. Your pastor is bad at this, but I'm trying. I'm trying. 
Even if it kills me, I'm going to try. <laughs> Second thing. Let's move on. Real quick. Second thing about this, this text uh, uh, that, 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 that jumps out at you if you're paying attention is that the Holy Spirit seems to be confused. Holy Spirit seems to be confused. Because in chapter 21, verse 4, the Holy Spirit says to the Christians in Tyre, apparently, seemingly, tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So the Christians in Tyre, prompted by the Holy Spirit, say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But we know from Paul, chapter 20, Paul says, compelled by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Okay? Paul's compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Tyre Christians, by the Spirit, say, don't go to Jerusalem. Holy Spirit's confused. Is he? No, no, no. Holy Spirit's rarely confused, actually. He's never confused. (laughs) Sorry about that. Bad theology. Rarely. So, like, possibly he could. No, no, no. Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is omniscient. He knows all. What's going on? Matter of fact, it's actually very practicable, you guys. Look, you know what's going on here? What's going on here is why the Holy Spirit was giving the Christians entire real insight about false future suffering. Their interpretation of what Paul should be doing about it was mistaken. Did you get that? They're getting insight from the Holy Spirit. Paul's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to face hardships. He's going to suffer. So their interpretation, don't go. Paul, Holy Spirit led insight. You're going to face hardships. You're going to suffer. Paul says, this is going to be used by God for his glory. I'm going to go. Check this out. One group of people get insight from the Holy Spirit that they're going to face hardships and they're going to face suffering. And the response is, I want to avoid it. One group of people get insight from the Holy Spirit that they're going to face hardships and suffer. And their response is, I better get ready for it. Many of us, inside from the Holy Spirit, we're going to suffer hardships. Our response, I got to avoid it. Paul, hardships, suffering, I better get ready for it. Which is the Christian life? You tell me. Which is the Christian life? Shout it out. Avoid it. Prepare for it. It's prepare for it. But we don't live it that way, do we? Suffering hardship. Avoid it. Christian life. Suffering hardship. Christian life. Prepare for it. Get ready for it. So much so that Paul says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task of testifying to the gospel of grace. Two principles real quick and then move on. Here's the first principle. Ready? Here it is. As hard as it is to accept God's will in our lives, it's sometimes harder for those who love us to accept God's will in our lives. Amen. <laughs> Byron, you could, you could, you could relate? Sometimes, because look at what the Christians are tired of doing. They're saying God's will for him is to suffer through the hardship. And they're saying, Paul, we plead with you. Don't go. We urge you. Don't go. Sometimes it's hard when God reveals his will for those who love us to accept it. Then it is for us. Let me give an example. 18 years old. I'm sitting at the kitchen table. Mom and dad, I got something important to say. What is it? I want to become a pastor. To which my mom said, oh, no, he didn't. No, no. I'm sorry. There's like Phil Jackson. Like, you know, I'm like channeling Phil Jackson from last Sunday. My mom said, why? You're both Christian. You love Jesus. I'm telling you, your son that wants to dedicate his life to full-time ministry. But you're going to be poor. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. I, God is revealing that I need to go. My dad. I don't think you're going to last. Wow. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And my dad begins to say things like, do you remember when you were 10 years old, you wanted to do Taekwondo, and you did it for like four months, and then you quit. Do you remember that? And do you remember when you're, I'm going, what is happening here? I am telling you, I want to give my life. Sometimes it is hard for those who love us to accept God's will. Parents, can I talk to you for a second? Parents, parents, our child comes to us and says, mom and dad, God's calling me to the ends of the earth. I may never see you again. Our response, what? 
what, what, what? No, 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 no. Go check again. Go listen again. Do you know people? No, actually, let me switch this. Are you somebody who's getting in the way of God doing something in someone's life? Are you somebody who's getting in the way of God doing something in someone's life because you just don't want them to be separated from you? You don't want them to suffer. You don't want them to go through hardships. Some of us, can I just, some of us, you know what it is? We don't want to look bad because their radical nature for Jesus makes us look. So we're like, oh, no, that's too much. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to give your life? And really, at the end of the day, it's about us going, if you do that, that's going to make me look like an apathetic Christian. So don't do it. Huh. Are you getting in the way of God doing something in someone's life? Even though you mean well, your intentions are good. And as I thought about this, I thought about my son, Parker and Sophie. Because I'm standing up every Sunday going, go to the ends of the earth. Sacrifice your life. And I'm waiting for that day when Parker would come and say, Dad, I want to be a pastor. I'm going to be like, do you remember when you were like six years old? You joined soccer and you quit. No, I'm not going to do that. I feel, I feel. I feel today, I need to say this to some of you guys. You mean well, your intentions are good, but at the end of the day, you need to let them go. You need to say, may God's will be done. Second principle, I'm going to have fun with this. Y'all ready? Don't ever give counsel or advice with divine authority unless it's the plain teaching of the Bible. Where do I get this from? We'll get this in a moment. Here's the thing about Christian life. You can tell your married Christian friend who is committing adultery. Do not. God says, do not commit adultery. Are you sure? I'm sure. It's the clear teaching of scripture. Stop sleeping with her. You could tell another Christian, God says, without a shout, my opinion, you have to forgive your mother. You have to forgive your father. How many times? As long as it takes. It's not my opinion. You must forgive. However, when it comes to advice about life choices and areas where the Bible has not clearly spoken Please offer your advice and counsel with humility and allow the counsel to be open to contradiction and discussion. Whenever a Christian comes to me and says things like this, God has shown me that you, I go, go back and ask God again because he hasn't shown me. Whenever a Christian says things like, God says that you should definitely leave that job and pursue another one. Or somebody says, God wants you to stop dating this woman and date that one. There's no doubt about it. Or God has shown me that you should leave your church and go to this one. People go, I'm just listening to God. I'm telling you, I'm going, go listen again. See, it's not that God doesn't speak to us and give us impressions, but could it be possible that the way that interpret what God might be doing to us might be wrong? Can I ask, how many of you guys have been hurt because you've had Christians speak like this into your life? And the hands go way up. The thing about the Christians entire, if it really was a direct authority word of God, when Paul says, I don't think so, they would have been like, you are this. What did they do? They were sad. They're saying, well, okay. But we really, okay. There was room for discussion, for community discernment, for wisdom from each other to speak. So you go, well, what should we do? Just a couple of things. If God gives you a strong impression, you feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, say things like this. I feel led by God to tell you this. However, I might be off. I might be right. Pray about it. Is that more humble? I think so. Or God is giving me this burden to tell you and share this with you. But make sure you check with scripture and ask men and women that you respect. Please don't give God, oh, Lord, one time, 
I'm sorry. And I understand some of you guys came from these theological traditions, but, but for me, the only time somebody gets to use pronoun I, like thus saith the Lord, okay, is God. So when another human being comes to me and says, I, or God, and speaks in the first point, and I go, zoom, 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 zoom. nope, nope, nope. Try again. Feeling led by God to save me something? Then tell me that way. Don't over-spiritualize it. Amen? Verse 17. Hand the home stretch here. All right, here we go. By the way, everybody look up here. Someone once said that all of Scripture is inspired, but not all of Scripture is inspiring. What we're going to read about is Paul paying for some guy's haircuts, okay? That's what we're going to read about. To which you're going to go, what? <laughs> what does it apply to me? Okay? Literally, Paul pays for a bunch of guys' haircuts, so they get their head shaved, okay? Going, what is it? It's got everything to do with you. Here we go. Verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers, which is another name for Christians, okay, received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, who was a brother of Jesus, by the way, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. So here's the thing. Gospel, going into the Gentile world, more pagans are coming to know him, right? And Luke, more than anybody else, has, has this desire to show that the gospel is for everyone. Everybody say everyone. Everybody say everyone. Gospel is for everyone. He says no matter the moral condition, no matter the social condition, no matter race, class, gender, the gospel is for everyone. And, and it's like Luke saying, check this out, check this out. It started in Jerusalem, but man, it's going to finish in Rome. It's going to finish the capital of the Roman Empire. It's for everybody. Now, the Jews were slow to get it. You remember? They're still talking about, but you know, this and that, this and that. But eventually they praise God because Paul is winning hearts and minds of people in the Gentile world. But it wasn't all hunky-dory. Did I just say that? Okay. Look at what happens. Verse 19. Then they said to Paul, and I'm going to try to kind of read it in the way that I think it happened. So, but Paul, um, how do we tell him this? Paul, okay, so, okay, there's some guys here, okay? Like, like thousands of them who are Jews, and, and they've come to believe that Jesus is a Messiah. And all of them Man, they're, they're crazy about the law, the Moses, law of Moses. They're zealous for the law of Moses. They, but, and they've been informed that, that you're teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So, 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 so what should we do? What should we do? I mean, they, they, this is, this is going to be hard. They will certainly hear that you've come. Okay, everybody, Bible study, a little Bible study. Because this is going to be relevant to the rest, of the, the rest of the book of Acts. Because it's going to come over and over again. The law of Moses was which books in the Old Testament? Does anybody remember? Exodus is Deuteronomy, right? The law of Moses. The law of Moses generally had two kinds of laws, okay? There were the moral laws. Everybody say moral laws. Moral laws. And they were like, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, so on and so forth. Right? Moral laws. And then there were these other whole section called ceremonial laws. Okay? ceremonial laws and they gave these detailed prescriptions about circumcision food dietary laws how you dress so on and so forth these two kinds of laws in the old testament now check this out the moral laws set the adherent apart ethically from the non-adherents doing the moral laws set you apart ethically the ceremonial laws though or the purity rights set the adherent culturally culturally from the non-adherents. That's what separated the Jews. Now, the ceremonial laws, okay, or the ceremonial regulations, not the moral laws, ceremony, circumcision, way dress. Why did God give them in the Old Testament? They serve two purposes. Number one, number one, they were to show, they were to show the distinctness of God, okay, culturally. In other words, because of the way you dress and die. For example, it made it really hard for you to date somebody and marry someone outside of your race and culture. Can you imagine going out dating? You, you don't eat pork? Oh, we can't be together then. What do you mean you can't eat pork? Dietary laws. What? What? You got to like rest on the Sabbath day? What do you mean? Like I work on the Sabbath day. What? What? They made it really hard. So socially, it was meant for the Jews to stay within their Jewish communities. But there was a second. And this is where it went wrong. The second rationale for the ceremonial laws was this. It was God's way of saying to the people that approach God, hey, you're not clean. What? No, you're not clean. So you know what? Wash your hands. 
Hey, I'm perfectly holy. You're not. So you know what? You've got sin. Offer sacrifices. It was a way of showing the Israelites that as they approached God, as they did these rites, it was a reminder to them that they were not acceptable on their own and they needed to be cleansed. Here's the problem. They took what in and of itself had no spiritual meaning and attached spiritual meaning to them. So the Israelites came to believe, because I washed my hands, now I am acceptable. Which means, if you don't wash your hands, you are what? Not acceptable. Because I offer sacrifices, now I'm acceptable. So if you're a Gentile and you don't offer sacrifices, you are what? Not acceptable. The author of Hebrews comes along, many believe Paul, and said, it was never that intention. Look what he says. The sacrifices were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. In other words, authors, he was saying, these ceremonial laws in and of themselves don't have any redemptive value. They pointed to a greater reality. Somebody will come. They will fulfill it. New Testament, Gospel of Luke, Jesus walking around, teaches the Pharisees going, why are you telling people to abolish the law? Jesus says, I'm not telling them to abolish the law. I came to what? Fulfill the law. Jesus Christ comes and he becomes the way for us to be made right with God, acceptable before God. Why? Because no matter how many sacrifices you offer, no matter how many hands you wash, you have to do it every single time you sin. And you're walking around going, Am I forgiven? Am I forgiven? I don't know. Am I forgiven? How do I know for sure? Jesus Christ comes along and says, There is a way that you can know that you know that you know. He becomes ultimate sacrifice. But the problem is, entrenched in this mentality for centuries and centuries, the Jews took ceremonial cultural regulations, placed spiritual value on them, and all of a sudden they're going, you know what? We need the Gentiles to obey these things. Why? Because if you don't, you're not acceptable before God. That was the problem, Acts 15. The Jerusalem Council, do you remember? They all come together, and it was critical because these Jews had to realize, no, those ceremony regulations, circumcision, diet, they don't save you. It is faith in Christ and Christ alone that saves you. I'll tell you why this is important, because some of you are sitting there going, that's the reason why I didn't want to become a Christian. See, some of us grew up in church where they said, don't smoke, don't drink, and don't go with girls that do. And for me, another big thing was don't watch rated R movies. Anybody remember that? Right? So my freshman year in college, I went to go see Silence of the Lambs just to stick it to them, right? And then I couldn't sleep for like three months. I was like, why did I do that? Consequence of sin, right? He said, no. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you, listen, 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 listen. Let me put it this way. Let me put it in the most blunt way possible. I don't care. I'm speaking to you. I don't care how many people you've slept with. And sleeping with now, you are not beyond forgiveness and cleansing of Jesus. Let me tell you right now, I don't care how much drugs you're addicted to, or you've been, I, I don't care. Jesus Christ died for you. I don't care how many people you've cheated, you've lied to, you've cheated like that. I don't care what things you've done. I don't care if you've been the gates of hell. Jesus Christ died to forgive and cleanse you. Amen. And if you're somebody going, I'm not that bad. I don't smoke. I don't drink drugs. I never sleeping with anybody. I'm a fairly good person, Peter. Here's your problem. See, the problem is the gospel says we don't need a life coach. We don't need somebody to come along and say, here's some things you can do better. We are fallen sinners that need rescue and salvation. And nothing but Christ will do. But the Bible says anyone can come. Anyone can come. Why? Jesus Christ has paid the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus Christ has paid. Is that good news to anybody? And no one championed this more than Paul, right? Nobody, nobody, nobody. Read all of his letters. Nobody championed this more than Paul. For example, here's just a glimpse of it. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. A man is not justified. The whole book of Galatians actually is phenomenal for this. Man is justified. That's, that's declared not guilty. It's a legal term, right? Acceptable before God. By observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith. Faith, faith, faith in Christ. And not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, knowing this about Paul, what these guys will now ask Paul to do was amazing. Because look what they say. So Paul, do what we tell you. 
There are these four guys with us, right? Who made a, a Nazarite vow, vow. By the way, if you want to know more about the Nazarite vow, number six, the book number six, not number six, the book numbers, Old Testament six. Verse 24, so take them and join their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they have their head shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. So here's what's going on. Paul, there are these Jews who think that you are just telling them they don't have to uh, obey, observe these laws. So, so, so here's the deal, Paul. So here's the deal. There are these four guys, right? They've taken the Nazarite vow. And Nazarite vow, you stop drinking alcohol for a while and you stop, you stop cutting your hair for a while, okay? And when the time was over, it was, it was, it was, it was a mosaic, it was a part of the mosaic regulations, Part of the mosaic line important. And when these guys were finished with that, they would go to the temple. The priest would cut their hair and they would burn the hair along with sacrifices and go through purity rites. And these guys, James and the elders are saying, hey, Paul, um, we want you to go to the temple when they're done. You don't have to shave your head. Just pay for their haircuts. And then go through the purity rites. Why? They're literally saying, so that the Jewish brothers in Jerusalem will know that you're not above the law. You're not observe, above observing the law. So you can deal with the misrepresentation about you, okay? Now, can I make something? Does Paul have to do it? What would you do? What would you do? Because I thought about what I would do. You know what I would do? I'd be like, oh no. <laughs> you know what the Bible says? To those who are free in Christ, I am free indeed. Jesus Christ came. That was just a shadow of things to come. So you know what? I am not going to obey those laws, okay? I am above that. Thank you very much. I am a free man, okay? My conscience is clear. Their conscience, I don't give a rat. They can do whatever the heck they want to. I am the apostle Paul. I am free. Free indeed. That's what I would have done. You know what, the Paulos? <laughs> Paul doesn't do that. You know what he does? Look at what he does. Oh, man. Verse 26. The next day, Paul took the men and he purified himself among with them. Verse 26. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Why does he do this? Why does Paul? See, y'all know I'm sitting down, so I know I'm stretching. Why does Paul? Why does Paul do this? And I tell you, it sounds so foreign to our ears. You know why? Because we swim, breathe, and bathe in a sea of individualism. Freedom. One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. My favorite scene, can you guess? I thought a lot about that scene this week as I think about it and why it resonates with me. And it's not all for good reasons. I have two kids. They're grown up. And I'm already realizing that there's this thing within us, human nature, to be free. But here's what freedom looks like. It's like I can't wait to walk so I can be free. I can't wait to run so I can be free. I can't wait till I'm 16 so I can be free. I can't wait till I go to college so I can be free. We think of freedom from constraints of those who would stifle our joy, stifle our life, so that we really be free. But let me ask you this. What do we ultimately do with our freedom when we have it? Here's what we do. We become free to drink ourselves into a mindless stupor on Friday night. With our freedom... We have meaningless sex with anyone who would want us without any meaningful commitment. With our freedom, we use and abuse other people in relationships so that our careers would advance. You and I live and breathe in a sea of freedom, even as Christians, where it's about self-expression. It's about autonomy. It's about what I want, my desires. It's not sin. I can do it, whatever. I can do whatever I want. It's about getting my wants, my desires, my wishes. But here's the thing about that, though. Do you realize that often the things that we choose in our freedom wind up holding us captive? Do you realize that sometimes the things that we freely choose are the things that imprison us and enslave us? Do you realize our very acts of freedom is the things that binds us? It's interesting that the Bible explains a human experience as being slave to sin. 
Sin is an illusion that says you can find freedom from God when the Bible says true freedom is found in God. You're not free if you're saying it today. God plus, I have to have that to feel whole. You're not free. You're bound. I need that in order to have meaning in my life. You are bound. I have to. I need. I want. I must. You're not free. You are bound. You're enslaved. See, here's the thing about Paul. He was truly free. He was truly free. He was so free that he utilized his freedom, not for himself, but out of love to serve others. Do you know why he does what he does? He's saying, for unity's sake, for the body, I will submit my own individual freedom for the sake of unity, for the sake of the mission, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of love for my brothers and my sisters, my individual self-expression, freedom, what I can do whenever I want to, will submit to the law of Christ, which is to love one another as we love ourselves. You are not free. If you are not freely using your freedom as an act of service to love somebody. So let me ask you a question. A series of questions. What are you willing to do today or this week that you feel is absolutely necessary, unnecessary for you personally, but you know will help maintain unity in the body of Christ? What would submitting to one another out of Ephesians 5.1, out of reverence for Christ, look like for you this week with your children with your husbands and wives, what would submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ look like? How seriously do you view the unity of this church so that you are willing to do everything possible to submit yourself to those who are different from you in ethnicity, culture, race, and even spiritual maturity? How flexible are you willing to be with your likes and preferences in order to preserve the unity of the body? What does dying to yourself so that love, which doesn't insist on its own way. Check this out. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Love doesn't insist on its own way. What does dying to yourself so that you can be reborn in Christ-like love, dying to yourself, not insisting on your own way, look like? What rights and freedoms would you be willing to give up for the sake of the mission of God? What is an inconvenience to you that might be a blessing to someone else? That you might consider this week. Here's a principle. I'm wrapping the sucker up and we're done. Genuine freedom is not freedom from God. But it's finding freedom in God. Which then leads to freedom from the things that stop you from being the person that God really wants you to be. Genuine freedom, you guys, genuine freedom, genuine freedom, genuine freedom that breathes, births life into you is when we come and are in proper relationship with God where we submit our desires and our will to his, trusting that he is good, he is gracious, and he is loving. And we try and find our freedom from God as long as I run from God. Many of you today are enslaved because all you've been doing is running from God. But Jesus Christ comes along and says, true freedom is found in him. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But true freedom as a Christian doesn't just end in freedom in something. Freedom in God, second principle, then leads to freedom for something. See, our freedom must never be about us alone, church. It's never about just freedom from constraints and restraints and what other people want. I am free in Christ, okay? I can do whatever I want to. True freedom is willingly submitting, subjecting our wills, our desires for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God, and for the mission of truth. True freedom. Here's how Paul said it. The reason why he could say this is because he lived what he preached. Daddy, you should come on up and we end with this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. 
that I may share in its blessing. Church, true definition of freedom is a gift of serving others out of love. Jesus Christ comes along and says to you and me, you're free to forgive. You are free to love unconditionally. You are free to serve your brothers and sisters. You are free to die to your desires and wants for the sake of the mission of church. You are free to die to your own goals and ambitions for the sake of the gospel. You are free to die to your own freedom so the mission of God can advance, the kingdom of God can advance so that your brothers and sisters could be edified and lifted up. You are free to happily curtail your own wishes as a Christian so that you will fulfill the law of Christ to love, love, to love. So I leave you with this. How would you finish this sentence? In freedom for love's sake. What can you do? In freedom for love's sake. Father, we come to you today. And God, I I need to confess that I... I'm bad at this, God. I, I struggle with this, God. I, I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I am about myself. I am rarely relinquishing my own desires and preferences for the sake of others. I too often insist on my own way. And the last thing on my mind is the gospel is the mission of God. And it's this body, this family of whom I am a part. So, Lord, I pray for myself this morning as much as my loved ones, my brothers and my sisters. I don't know where they're at today, God. But would you recalibrate our soul? Will you, God, recalibrate our minds? Will you recalibrate the way we think, God, about what it means to be free, what it means to be above the law? Will you recalibrate our soul? Will you recalibrate our inner being so that we would have the mind of Christ? And God, perhaps show us how we can respond to this. Would you show us how we can respond to this? as husbands, as wives, as children, as leaders, as followers. And as these guys lead us in the last song, can I just encourage you to spend the next moment or so just uh, praying for yourself and perhaps even praying for this church that we might be this body and it's truly one, truly united, truly dying to ourselves for the sake of others. Say, we all stand together. And as I pray this prayer of benediction, I want you to do something with me. I want you to put your hands out like this, palms facing up. I want, you to, I want you to stand with your arms stretched out. This is a sign of surrender. Genuine treat and freedom. To live this life and to love only comes in utter and total surrender to God. Utter and total surrender to God. You want to live a life of radical, genuine freedom. It comes via surrender. So do this. And I'm going to pray for me. I'm going to pray for you, God. In utter and total surrender of our ambitions, of our goals, of our desires, of our wants. In our desire to say, God, I want those things to be crucified on the cross so that we might experience resurrection life. 
I don't know what it is that keeps some of us, God, from genuinely living. But I come right now, God, and I yield and surrender all of those things at the foot of the cross. My fears, my pride, my arrogance, my self-dependency, my addictions, God, all of those things. In the power of your Holy Spirit, renew my mind, renew my heart, renew my soul. That I could live this life radically poured out for the least of these and my brothers and sisters here today. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Say amen and amen. Have a great week, you guys. We'll see you back here as we continue our journey. You feel free to stick around and pray. If you would like, we'll be up here. Pray for some of you that need prayer requests. Have a good week.